0: This is a podcast from Radio Molly, a digital radio station for Irish literature, broadcasting from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located on Dublin's St Stephen's Green. For more from Radio Molly and the Museum of Literature Ireland, visit radio.molly.ie. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that buying Molly membership for yourself, your family, or a friend is the best way to support the museum and its programming. Head over to molly.ie forward slash membership to sign up. Thank you for listening. UCD has a particular focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So, we've come together with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, in this project called Past, Present and Pride. It's a a way for us to, to work with, to interview, to hear the voices of LGBTI writers Um, Irish writers, and perhaps some international writers, a way to give voice to to the LGBTI experience, to advance um, issues of of diversity, inclusion and equality. I'm Paul Dalton. I'm a clinical psychologist and I work in UCD, and I also work in in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital in Ellen Park. Our first guest, I'm I'm delighted to say, is Emma Donoghue, a writer, 11 novels, five collections of short stories, numerous plays, very well known for the book Room and the film adaptation. Emma is a graduate of UCD and her first novel, Stirfly, was set in UCD uh, in the 1980s, is a lesbian coming-of-age novel. Emma, Emma Donoghue, a very warm uh, virtual welcome to Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, um, and to Newman House, the, um, the foundation uh, house, the foundation of UCD, your, your alma mater. We are um, definitely complying with social distancing, uh, you're, you're in Canada.
1: Thousands of <laughs> thousands, thousands of, of, of kilometres apart we are. <laughs> yes, I'm in London, Ontario, where where I live. With, with, um, with but your, um, uh-huh. I'm feeling at home already, Paul, because you pronounced my surname right. Don't you know, it, It's not don't something it I'm fussy about, given that I live in Canada. Uh, but hearing who I just think, oh, okay, ah. I'm with I'm with those who understand me.
0: <laughs> so, so, so you're over there, and I and, and and I'm here. Um, so, I mean, just. Jumping, jumping right in, your, your first book uh, and your most recent book, uh, soon, to be, soon to be with us, uh, are both set in Dublin. Um, so I was thinking, to date, your writing is almost book-ended uh, by, by Dublin, your first book and, and your most recent. And your, your first book, firstly, you, you, you've published I think um, 11 novels and five collections of, of short stories. Your, your first book uh, in 1994, Starfry, Fry, um, set in UCD, um, it opens with the words, uh, two women seek flatmate, no bigots. And the central character, um, Mariah, um, her, her, her life, her, her coming of age unfolds. It's described as many things, but, but as a lesbian novel. Is, is that an accurate description?
1: yeah um you can you can draw a line of uh, lesbian literary tradition either through the writers of it as in whatever we lesbians write <coughs> is lesbian fiction or through themes so of course that's two different ways of drawing the line as stir fry works for under both headings i would say and you know if ever i'm tempted to complain about being pigeonholed at any point in my career um, I remember that, in fact, it got me a lot of extra publicity and a lot of extra attention when I published Stir Fry in 1994. So um, there's, you know, there are there are pros and cons mm. to having a label attached to you as a mm. writer. Mm. But I certainly can't complain about the lesbian one because mm. I think whatever helps ru- a writer stand out from the crowd at all, especially when they're first publishing, is a good thing. And also, I've never found it to be a label that that um, you know sits heavily on my shoulders because I think my readers have been very Willing to allow my imagination to wander off wherever it, wherever it may find itself. And,
0: and Emma, was that the case in even in
1: 1994? It was oddly enough. Right. Um, I found, for instance, my, my lesbian fan base—they were so grateful. Um, Stir Fry and then my second novel, Hood, both set in Dublin, both lesbian novels, and they were they were thrilled by that. But uh, nobody ever said to me, "Oh, why have you know?" Mm. Um, my, my first sort of big-selling novel in 2000, uh, *Slammer*, didn't have a lesbian theme, and I've never found my my um, my queer fan base to be in any way resentful of that. Sometimes they might poignantly say, "When's your next lesbian-themed fiction?" <laughs> but um, they, they 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 don't they don't keep. Um, they're writers on a tight leash. Put right, it that way. Right. I think. I think what um, lesbian and gay readers appreciate is, is the freedom of the imagination. Mm. You know. So I've always found them appreciative, but in no way um, strict.
0: <laughs> mm, 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 no way confining. You. I mean, your your latest novel, due to be published in a, in a few days, I I, I think.
1: It the, comes out in um, about around the twentieth of July. Ah, yeah. Um, right. The pull of the stars. It's set in a Dublin hospital.
0: Tell us us about it.
1: Well, I wanted to write about the flu pandemic of um, 1918. Um, I got this, you know, I started writing this book in 2018, thinking of the flu pandemic as purely historical, having no idea that it would come out in the middle of a new pandemic. Um, And I could have said it anywhere in the world, Paul, you know yourself, you know, that, that pandemic was devastating, perhaps even worse in Asia than Europe but there's a lot to be said for knowing your territory and, and, and especially in terms of idiom. So I thought I'll set it in Ireland, I'll set it in a hospital because I'm very interested in, in what the weird and crazy atmosphere and um, there must have been in, in big um, institutions for trying, trying to keep people alive and had all these different factors to juggle. Um, and so I thought I'll set it in Dublin, of course, Dublin in 1918 was a fascinating t- time and place anyway mm, because mm. the country was going through such political upheavals in a, just a couple of years. So I thought it would be a wonderful kind of um, nexus of, of political and health crises, mm. was to set it right there. Yeah, mm. But I went for a fictional hospital because I didn't want any one hospital to... to um, you know, get up in arms about, was I misrepresenting their practices, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of these things are very controversial, uh, medical practices of the day and whether they were, you know, acceptable for the time or were they always um, barbaric. So um, so I decided a, a fictional Dublin hospital would give me that, that right balance between um, sort of authenticity and... Um, freedom to make it up.
0: And Emma, it's a maternity hospital. I'm right. So this is about... It's a maternity a, yeah. ward, a ward in a general hospital. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And
1: one of the first facts that grabbed me about the 1918 pandemic was that um, the, uh, a group who got the flu in, in extraordinary numbers and who suffered a lot from it were pregnant women, women in late pregnancy and for a few weeks after birth even. So birth and and the, the great flu, the, the Spanish flu, as some called it, um, was a terrible kind of, um, you know, not uh, comorbidities, you might say. Um, so I thought it would be really interesting to set a novel among women who had the flu and were about to give birth, because mm. those two health crises have very different storylines and very different possible outcomes. So I thought mm. it would make it more interesting than just pure flu. Um, and it also allowed me to focus the novel so much on, on women. You know, it creates yeah. this tiny little sort of, bubble in which women are intensely suffering and working together and looked after by women nurses and in, even a woman doctor. So it, it gave me a weird opportunity to make a kind of yeah. little all-woman bubble right yeah. in the middle of the more familiar sort of men's territory of, of war, yeah. of, of World War One and of the Irish Revolutionary Struggle.
0: C- Kathleen Lynn you is, isn't that right? Um, we're, we're yeah, I, was, I to, was
1: going to mm-hmm. use a fictional doctor but then when I was you know researching doctors in 1918 in Dublin there was Kathleen Lynn and she's such a fascinating yeah. figure because she was she had she had fingers in so many pies she was so committed to the women's struggle, the labor struggle and then as a result of those the Irish revolutionary struggle and she was busy running around Dublin running a flu a free flu clinic. Um, her diaries are very vivid on the sheer hectic um, urgency of, of trying to figure out how to keep people alive during the flu. Um, and she was living in a relationship with a woman. I mean, she was a fascinating figure. Um, and um, I just thought she, she she was too good to leave out of the book. So she's my one real character. Yeah. Um, and the novel is narrated by a, a fictional nurse called Julia Power. And there's also a third key character who's a, a volunteer helper. Because I wanted to show that whole span, that whole range of of people in healthcare from, you know, the lowly cleaners who as we know are, are at just as much risk in, in crisis or pandemic situations. And then the, the high status doctors as well.
0: Yeah, the, the Emma, what we've become very familiar with, the, the frontline workers um, in, in this pandemic. I mean, it, 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 must be, it must be strange, unusual for you to have done all of this research, to have this, to have this book out into the world about a pandemic in a pandemic i mean extraordinary
1: i've never had a novel become suddenly timely in this way it feels very strange you know um i mean of course when you write historical fiction you're always hoping it'll be relevant to today you know of course you know when i was writing the novel the things i had to say about for instance the way um there's a moment in the book when when the nurse uh, nurse Julia says to dr lynn like "I, i try i don't have time for politics i try and stay out of politics and Dr. Lin says, everything's political. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you care about your patients and if you start to see that the poor ones are dying in greater numbers, or if you start to see that the women who have 12 children are more likely to drop dead, you know, you can't help but start to analyze these things yeah. in terms of society's choices, where we spend the money and social justice. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I expected it to be, to have relevant themes for today, but I didn't expect it yeah. to be, you know, disturbingly like the issues of, of today. You yeah. know, do you wear masks? how often do you wash your hands, mm. uh, you know, what are the known knowns of mm. contagion and what are the, the still unknown knowns mm. and that atmosphere of, of dread and panic yeah. and, and busyness, you know, having to keep on working even in situations where you're, yeah. you know, in the back of your mind fear is going yeah. tick, tick, tick. We're,
0: yeah, where people are, are putting their lives at risk to care for other people that we've seen across the globe and, and, and still. And, and I think uh, what really strikes me is the, the, the light that a uh, pandemic in, in 1918 and now throws on inequality.
1: Oh, it's like a sort of an X-ray for a society, isn't it? Yeah, it's you know, I've seen a map of, say, Toronto near where I live and, and the, 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 the areas with immigrants, the areas yeah. with people of colour, the areas with poorer people that's where it's hitting. So, you know, to describe an illness merely spreading through a city like some wave that's very naive. It it turns out that it attaches itself to to poverty um, in all sorts of ways. And I think, again, the the recent Black Lives Matter protests, they're making people more aware than ever. But it's not just yeah. accident if, if people die. You yeah. know, in a way, we, we make decisions early on in life about who's going to live or die. We do. Um, so health has never been more political than right now, I think. Yeah.
0: And and Emma said very recently, you know, that, um, yeah, we may be in the same storm, but we're sure not in the same boat.
1: You know? That's well put, Paul. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah, that's really so not. true. And of course, you know, I've had a very easy pandemic. I'm a writer at my job uh, carries on very normally during shutdown. Yeah. I'm used to staying home, so it hasn't even been a shock to me. Yeah. And yet I've yeah. been so aware there's been this weird gap between the comfort of my own daily life, working away on the next book, and and all the horrors of the news headlines. Yeah. So again, I, I feel this, this new kind of um, commitment and compulsion to kind of um, write fiction that is relevant to today. It doesn't always have to be explicitly about today, but you certainly can't ignore what's going on. Yeah. And, and,
0: and you, you set this in, in an Irish context, um, a place that gives care. And our institutions in Ireland, as I think people know in many parts of the world, have very complex and sometimes very brutal pasts. So, so where we come, where vulnerable people come to be cared for, um, they've often been very brutalised. Just, did some of that influence your, your setting of the novel in Ireland?
1: Definitely. I suppose um, I, I suppose I feel if you're being very critical of things, it's probably best to make them your things. You know So when I was writing, say, the Wonder about a, a, a little child who's not eating in the 1850s, I said that in Ireland so that my critique of Irish Catholicism could be very much mm-hmm. you know, done on home territory rather yeah. than my pointing fingers at some other cultural tradition. And the same with the pull of the stars. Um, I suppose I show the hospital as as really a very good institution, very life-saving. But, of course, it was a different time, so they've got some practices which we would find bizarre. For instance, when a a stillbirth happens, they're they're pretty much told, put that that stillbirth in a little cardboard box, package it up for disposal, and don't talk to the mother about it, don't show her don't discuss it. Um, You know, we'd find that brutal. And so one of my technical problems with the book was, um, not to have the readers judge my, my nurses and doctors and, and think that they're horrible or incompetent people. You know, they're working with the skills that they have. Um, but another institution that I included in the book um, as background is that I, I wanted to to show somebody managing to sort of give out of a life that had had no privilege in it at all. So I decided to invent a volunteer who turns up and helps at the hospital who would be from um, a, a an impoverished Irish background and would have experience of Irish residential institutions that was, was no good at all. And I was fascinated by the idea that, you know, despite all she's been through, and I drew very closely, by the way, on, on the, um, the Ryan Report on, on Irish um, orphanages and, and residential yeah. institutions. Um, so despite many horrors that she's been through and the fact that she's never had any status within Irish culture, this young woman still has a kind of natural generosity and energy and vitality. And one thing that struck me in, in the Ryan report was how many of the, of the people giving evidence said that they were made to feel useless or worthless. And they were always told, you know, you have to work hard to try and pay society back because you're, you've contributed nothing. So I was fascinated by the idea that a volunteer might actually find, you know, in grueling, um, grueling hospital conditions, she might still find it a thrilling few days in her life because she's feeling important for the first time. You know, she's feeling needed. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so, so I, I have a very mixed sense, I suppose, about, about Irish institutions.
0: So, you know, Emma, a little like, I was thinking, just like the volunteer, your volunteer in The Pull of the Stars. You know, when, when, when COVID-19 began to impact in this part of the world, there was lots of, um, there was lots of drama and lots of um, predictions that we would turn into the very worst versions of ourselves—that kind of d- dystopian uh, view of the world and humanity—and and certainly here, talking about volunteers, I mean, people did extra—and are doing—but people did extraordinary things um, for for other people, um, and and. Y- we didn't murder and 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 rape each other but people people volunteered and they they made bread and they uh, they yes. listened to the birds well, for instance Bird. the
1: toilet paper hoarding right <laughs> at first there were reports the toilet paper was running out and so we all had an image of you know certain you know, selfish people buying hundreds of rolls. But it turned out it was just everyone buying a couple of extra rolls. You know, there was no dreadful behavior with the toilet paper hoarding. (laughs) So yes, I quite agree with you, Paul. In fact, I remember I read an article in which somebody asked um, uh, an epidemiologist how they thought pandemic fiction tends to get it wrong. And he said, pandemic fiction tends to... tends to show the social order breaking down overnight, you know, instant savagery. And in fact, people tend to behave extremely well and and develop new forms of, of mutual care. So we've certainly been seeing that, there's a a Mm. huge goodwill. I mean, here when I go out for walks, you know, I'm skirting six feet around everyone and everybody's nodding and smiling and there's been so much practical help of the more vulnerable. So yeah, yeah. I I wanted to show a novel in which the flu may be a total horror and the war's going on, but there's also a huge amount Mm. of of sort of selfless service. Mm.
0: And the confinement, so the confinement that you write about in The Pull of the Stars, the confinement that you write about in Room, of course. Um, you've, you, you, you've written and you've researched a lot about confinement and solitude. Um, I'm wondering a little bit about how did it impact on your life and your family's life over the last few months? I, I, I've heard writers and artists say, well, actually, it didn't really impact on me because my life was pretty solitary or... But well, any surprises? How did lockdown treat you all?
1: I've been having a very good lockdown. I felt very lucky, but it certainly made me oddly aware that my usual life is too busy. I mean, I'm a very extroverted writer, so I'm writing alone much of the day, but then I love to do things in the evening to see friends and so on. And I have missed all that, and I've definitely missed things like theatre and live music. But on the other hand, there has been a, an odd relaxation to it. And I realised I probably was burning the candle at two ends too yeah. much so you know it's not that it's good to transform my life but um i certainly have appreciated very much the kind of more relaxed pleasures of Say, for instance, this summer, we, we bought a big inflated paddling pool for the hot Ontario summer. So, you know, sitting around in the pool, squirting, squirting our kids with yeah. um, water pistols. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to be yeah. said for it. Yeah. You know, low yeah. key pleasures.
0: You, 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 said, uh, you, you said elsewhere that, um, that room was a, cont- a, a meditation um, on, on safety versus freedom. Um, and 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 I think a lot of us have been kind of somewhere in the middle of safety and freedom, and and, and some of that kind of the reflection, the, the kind of existential kind of questions or the value questions that I think I, I, I don't know if that's been 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 no, true for you. No, we've all been having these
1: questions, and um, you know every every household in every nation they're sitting around saying, okay, hang on, is it is it worth taking this risk to get a haircut, or is it worth? risking that I'll do harm to a neighbor by going to talk to her. I remember we wanted to drop off some chocolates at a, a neighbor's um, Mother's Day. And so I, you know, I swabbed the box with a Lysol wipe and then I thought she won't know I have. So then I attached a post-it saying, I have Lysoled this box. <laughs> so I was trying to do her some good and not do her harm. Yeah, yeah, um, so yeah. yes, and, and then we're having discussions like, okay, I, at the moment, I'm feeling like our, our kids have to go back to school, even if it's a risk, because I, I would feel terrible about keeping them out of school for longer. Yeah. So there are all these different ways of, of doing harm and benefit. And I find parenthood in particular really, that's why I wrote Room, because parenthood had really focused my mind on this question of, you know, safety versus freedom. And you have to literally keep the baby from falling off the sofa and yet give the baby lots of stimulus. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I... Yeah, I think parenthood has been a real gift to me as a writer because it's, it's really um, sharpened my focus on those sort of existential and ethical questions. Um, and in a way which is never fixed. There's no final solution because parenthood is renegotiated yeah. every single day. They're a day older and you're a day tireder. <laughs> you, and, <laughs> Even and, during lockdown, I've, yeah. I've become a more relaxed mother because I felt I don't want to be squabbling with them about so many things when, when so many yeah. things are forbidden already. You know, so if yeah. I can say yes during this lockdown, I do. Because, you know, the pandemic is saying no to them in so many yeah. ways. Yeah.
0: You, 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 you've, described, you've described parenting as, as probably one of the most important human stories to be told or that we tell. You, and you do that, you talk about parenting in a way that strikes me as very unsentimental, and um, really, really good on the grey bits. This is this. Canvas. Oh, it's
1: all grey. <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: but you really, I, I think you've really given voice to that, to the the kind of in-between land, the paradox, the the the, the ambiguity uh, of parenting, of relationships.
1: In a way, I think the reason parenting has been such a stimulating subject for me is that. Um, I couldn't always assume that I would get to be a parent. Mm. you know, coming out in Ireland um, I felt like I was stepping onto the no children route, that's certainly how it seemed in the 80s. Um, so and I felt that was worth it to me to say, yes, I'm gay, this is my life even if it means no kids. So then when after a few years I began thinking it might be possible to have children and Chris and I ended up having two of them, and it was very much chosen. And also when there are two parents of the same, of the same gender, you do a lot of kind of thinking about your roles. None of, it see, none of it is just a sort of natural, oh, of course she will breastfeed and he will cut the grass. You know, you yeah. have to think about all of it. So yeah. I think perhaps coming to parenting um, with a queer perspective allowed me to just see it a little bit um, fresh. And realize, you know, it's not that everybody has to parent. It's one very particular way to spend your time, but it's a hugely rich and interesting way.
0: And, and or, I mean,
1: here's and, an example: our, our kids call us by by our first names, and some people are shocked by this. They think it's disrespectful. But, you know, the you know the the, the mammy daddy thing, which I grew up with, yeah. um, you know, we couldn't use those words, so we had to pick other words, and yeah. it, it ended up being our names, Emma and Chris, that the kids use mostly. So that's the kind of thing. Um, that you know you just look at slightly afresh because you 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 had to think about parenting mm. before doing it
0: and and i've heard you say emmett that it's probably been a different experience doing that in canada where the law has been on your side
1: it has but i don't like to generalize about canada versus ireland because You know, Ireland has changed so much. There may be ways in which Ireland has jumped ahead of Canada. So I wouldn't want to be comparing, you know, Ireland-Turk in 1990 with Canada now. But but let's just say that many of the laws did change earlier in Canada. So by the time we were having kids in 2003, um, we were already able to get, um, you know, uh, Finn's birth cert modified so we were both as legal parents. So we have always mm. felt, um, you know, as it were safe, getting back to safety versus freedom. We've yeah. always felt protected as a family by by Canadian law. Yeah. And that certainly made a difference because then you just have the ordinary existential terrors of parenting. <laughs> <You> don't <laughs> have other ones like, yeah. will the government take my babies yeah. away?
0: Yeah, yeah. And and, and and the safety versus freedom um, to, to go back to room and to go back to Jack um, and, and that, that granting of his of his freedom of, 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 of his escape of, of, of allowing him escape, if you like, um, of letting him go, letting go letting go of what we what we love um, I mean I guess as a parent eh, that's that, that, that's what you do or have to do, is it?
1: Yeah I think room worked and touched so many readers just because it's a, it's an intensified version of what every parent and every child does. You know, they're, they're always going to grow up and leave you. Just in the case of room, there's a moment where she has to let it happen all in one go. It's terrifying, but mm-hmm. it is what every parent does when they wave their child off to school or see their, see their child making choices that the parent wouldn't have approved of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, our son is learning to drive at the moment. I'm terrified every time he goes out there, but there's yeah. no way I'm going to stop him. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You, you, you're also really, inter- and I think I can say this as a psychologist, um, it strikes me that you're really interested in resilience, in, in what kind of keeps people afloat, what makes for human happiness. And, and as a psychologist, I can say, Emma, we do a really bad job in focusing on deficits, on what's broken, on what's not working properly. Um, and, and I've certainly appreciated from your work the lens that kind of shifts um, and says, well, what actually are the, the ingredients of, of a happy life, of a meaningful life? Is, is, is that something, is that real? Is that, uh, say, can you say something yes, about that?
1: I would say there are two reasons for that. I'm, I'm, I'm very cheerful myself, so I, I, I wouldn't be likely to write stories that are entirely grim. They're often very grim in their setup, very morbid, very macabre, but, but they tend to lead towards the light in some way. But it's also a literary reason. Um, your reader has to have some reason to read your book. So there has to be, there's kind of a bargain there. And I don't mean that I owe them sweetness and apple pie. Mm. And sometimes there will be tragic endings, but there still has to be a feeling that the story is meaningful. You know, that it's not just a random, you know, mess and chaos of a short and brutish existence. So I'm very careful when I tell dark stories to give the reader enough uplift or, or to give them, you know, moments of escape. For instance, in The Pull of the Stars, you know, you're, you're jammed into that tiny little ward for three days. And so I put in one scene where they go up on the roof of the hospital and they have a little picnic up there and eat an orange, you know, because we all, as readers, need some respite. Mm. So, yeah, mm. I'm very interested mm. in, in, in those aspects. Mm. But sadly, mm. it's very hard to make a good story out of plain, ordinary happiness. You know? <laughs> My own life, for instance, really doesn't provide me with <laughs> much well, in the way of narrative. You know, moves to Canada is extremely happy for the next quarter of a century. <laughs> well, know, two know, lovely I, kids. I, yeah,
0: because, because <laughs> you're... Right there. I mean, your early your early life. So um, you you spent the first twenty years of your life in in Dublin. Um, you, eight
1: years in England doing eight, PhD. Eight
0: years and twenty something in Canada.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm very lucky. I've emigrated twice. Emigration is a wonderful yeah. um, experience for a writer. You know, it's a it's a slight defamiliarization device. that makes you look at your own culture yeah. outside. You're going. Other people don't necessarily like tato crisps. You know, we <laughs> don't all taste the same way. Yeah. Um, if you look at the the new culture very much as an outsider as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it gives you that, that little little arm's length perspective that I think is yeah. crucial to write. And and
0: Emily, and you, you you were one of eight children you were the youngest of eight children. Oh, yes, eight the child favorite
1: siblings. spoiled one yeah. of eight. Yeah. yeah.
0: Your your parents were academics and actually um, I'm sitting in Newman House on St Stephen's Green and I think I understand that your family had a little interlude when they lived here. D- did
1: you live here? Right sometime in the 60s before I was born okay. um I think I think the the first six of the kids and and um, parents and um, stayed in a flat upstairs from you for a couple of months wow. yeah because my father Dennis Donoghue at the time was um, you know UCD, UCD. professor I um, yeah. can't remember his job title, yeah. in the English department he was. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we were sort of lent a bit of Newman House to live in, you know? <laughs> So yeah. I always, um, I used to look up at the building, whenever I'd pass Stephen's Green. I'd look up and kind of go, oh, we lived there, what fun. And you know, I'm very fond of UCD in all sorts of ways. I really grew up on the Belfield campus, we lived right beside it. Um, in the 70s and I would go through that hole in the fence and, and explore those woods and write words working in poetry all inspired by the trees of UCD. Yeah. It's my home, it's my home place you, in so many ways. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You, you, you described yourself as growing up, you were you were a straight A student um, but you weren't straight and at, at about 14 I think you realised that you were gay, that you were lesbian and I mean, that was in an Ireland, a 1980s Ireland. Sort of been, yeah, uh, 80, 83, 84,
1: right, yeah, right. yeah. Um, not, not an ideal setting for it to happen.
0: Wow. I, but
1: I, you know, to a writer, it was a gift because you need something to sort of shake you out of that feeling of I'm normal, everything's normal, everybody's normal. You know, you need to be, you need to be jolted. Um, so, so I think it's very good to 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 come across one way in which you are the other, you are the abject, you are the despised, you are the bogeyman, you know, and because then it gives you an intense kind of sympathy with everyone else who's treated like dirt um, in one way or another by their yeah. culture. So you... I think it was, you know, I think realising I was gay and then parenthood have been, have been the two great formative experiences for me that, that are behind all my books.
0: And, and I mean, realising that you were gay in a culture, in a 1980s catholic culture, where you felt like you, you were marginalised, you were outcast, you were very othered. Um, was, it, was it that that you kind of wrote against? Because I, I, I guess that you are from your reading that actually your, um, your family life, um, unlike a lot of Irish writers, uh, was, was, was quite, quite happy. There wasn't a Absolutely. lot of trauma. I was very happy um, yeah. and
1: nurturing and literary, but, yeah. but I have to say, you know, realizing that I, I was falling for a girl, it, it, it did sort of provoke me into writing because I suddenly had a secret. Um, I was, you know, it's not so much that I actually was cast out, it's more I felt if anybody knew, I would be cast out. So it's very paradoxical to feel you're this high status, straight A, you know, running the debating society, you know, doing plays with, with, with schools, and all this is, is fine as long as nobody knows your dreadful, filthy secret. So so that was an odd experience, yes. I remember say when the first Channel Four broadcasts were happening in Ireland and there was a, a programme in which young lesbians spoke direct to camera, and I remember watching this surreptitiously while my parents were out, thinking, Oh my god, there are others out there.
0: There were others out there.
1: It feels as if they, they were outside of Ireland. Yeah. So you can imagine with what excitement I've seen the changes in Ireland in recent years. Uh, and you know, when the when the marriage referendum went through, for instance, I was so yeah, moved.
0: I uh, yeah. You you know that piece, and, that some, and I, I don't know who says it, but to understand a human being, um, we, we need to know what was going on in, their, in the world when they were teenagers. So there isn't much between you and I, um, but growing up in Ireland in, in, as a teenager, there were two things that, that, that I remember vividly. They were the, the AIDS epidemic, that the horror and the, the fear and the propaganda. That that was just was, was everywhere, and Emma, we were growing up in a country where homosexuality was criminalised. You you know we decriminalised in, in 1993. You were 20, you were 20 something. So criminalised um, and and an epidemic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder. I, I think gay men probably felt that more, mm-hmm. whereas as a lesbian, of course, I was very aware of those two things. But it was mostly just the absolute silence, just the you know, the invisibility of Irish lesbians that I felt more. But I was very aware, sort of through my through gay male friends, of, of the sort of you know, the bigger shadows. And I remember going on um, Pride March in ninety three to celebrate decriminalisation and just thinking. This is extraordinary. They've actually, you know, changed a law that has an immediate effect on our lives, and yeah. you know, we changed it. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. so, yeah. That's probably the best sort of political demo or celebration I've ever been on. Was that one?
0: Really? Yeah. yeah.
1: You go all at once from criminalisation to anti discrimination law. Yeah. To yeah. So, whoa.
0: And and it's, it's, say a little bit more about the about the silence. You know, the the the. The, the, the things that weren't talked about your identity you t- say a little bit more about that
1: I remember for instance in our in our secondary school um you know we, we talked about everything we had debates even about issues that were quite taboo like abortion but they, they were taboo, but could you know they were morally taboo but they could be discussed loud and clear but they just didn't mention homosexuality at all I think one Irish teacher in in our sixth year wanted to suggest this might possibly be a way of interpreting a short story, but he couldn't say it out loud and we all got confused. And then he was like, never mind, never mind. So it was just the unspeakable. And um, it, it was one of those things you knew was evil, but you had never been explicitly told. It's, it's amazing how society can clearly communicate things without saying them out loud.
0: Oh, isn't um, it? Uh, yeah. And
1: I remember the first few lesbian books I came across in books upstairs in, in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, Buying them immediately but, but surreptitiously, you know, feeling like, oh will they judge me as yeah. they as they as they ring through my money. Yeah.
0: Um yeah. So
1: that, that desperate sense of need, um, you know, I look back and it feels like an absolutely transformed world yeah. that I live in.
0: And and Emma, was it was it different at home? I mean, was there was conversation different at home? Was was there a different kind of silence at home?
1: It was was very good, but again, you know, the gay thing just didn't come up. Didn't come up, and I was—I had a lot to lose in that. I was this approved-of young woman. I wasn't a rebel. I was seen as very good. I was not, you know, wasting any time with boyfriends or getting into any trouble with boyfriends or <laughs> anything. So to feel that really I was the this this person that they would despise if only they knew, um, and that's why, of, of my many lovely memories of my mother, who died a couple of years ago. One of my very favorite memories is when I finally, at the age of 21, when I had moved to England, so I was safely away from home, so on a Christmas visit home, I, I decided I was going to come out to her, and I was so scared of it, I had to delay my flight by a week just to, to give me more time, and then I finally did it, sitting in the car, parked, staring at the garage. I finally told her, and she told me she had guessed when I was 16, and that I was still her little baby. I am still moved, by oh. that, Paul, you know, to feel that. It be all those years of your teens afraid that people are going to hate you and then have your mother look at you with such love, you know?
0: Oh gosh, yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I don't know, I don't know about you, Emma, but I think that that legacy of those years lived in fear, a fear that. Actually, people might hate us um it's very formative isn't it 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 transforms how we are in the world in many ways in many ways i so 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 not to suggest that it's um it's it, oh it's a wonderful thing, but I've seen incredible things come from that from that that pain and that isolation, and awful things too
1: maybe it makes us Choosy about who we fill our lives with, because you know we don't ever want to feel like that again. So we seek out the ones who we know from the start are going to are going to treasure mm-hmm. us. One <laughs> way it would take you, I, I, or it's certainly as a parent, I feel I never want my kids to be in any doubt about whether I would you know be angry with them or punish them. Um, um,
0: yeah, I- I, I, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself here, but it feels like I'd like to ask you about this now. I, I think sometimes in your work, I've kind of seen it as a little bit of a Trojan horse, that you, um, you write in a way that invites people into, into different worlds that they mightn't necessarily find themselves in, you, you write in a way that, um, if, I say, if I can say it very bluntly, um, I think nurtures a, a, a kindness, nurtures a, a kindness.
1: It's very, that's very nicely put, Paul. Um, I'm certainly aware that I use certain things like, say, humour as a kind of a lubricant. To bring in subjects that might make the reader tense otherwise. Um, I've written a couple of books for children about a big family where a gay couple and a lesbian couple have lots of kids together and I'm really aware that I bring in all sorts of touchy and tense issues but the humor lets it all slide down and with some of my other novels I, I delay information. Yeah like in several of my novels for instance the by the end of the novel there's a same-sex love story but that's not that's not what I lead with on page one so I suppose mm. I am aware of getting to kind of lead or lure the reader sometimes mm, into, mm, into a story that they didn't know they were going to care mm. about.
0: You, you, you've said on, on more than one occasion, and it's something that's really stayed with me, you've said that um, fiction is a, is a technology um, to create empathy or to, to, to nurture empathy. I, I, tell me more about that. I, I, I was intrigued by that.
1: You know, I don't even just mean its effects on the readers. I'm I'm aware as a writer that if I make a commitment to telling a story from the point of view of character A, I'm going to see it from their point of view, even if they're the baddie, for instance. Um, you know, the the process of 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 you know, sentence by sentence saying what's going through the mind of character A, you're with them. Um, so so. It's it's very powerful, even in its effects on me. And similarly, the reader is 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 you know sucked into the mind of that person and will see things as mm-hmm. they do. So, for instance, I once wrote a short story about um, uh, rape as a war war crime in the American War of Independence. There was an awful episode where the um, where the the British troops who were actually German mercenaries um they were stationed in New Jersey and they they raped the local girls en masse. So I wrote a short story, but from the point of view of a sort of uh, I think 15-year-old you know, child soldier who'd been kind of you know, indentured into this, never chose to be a soldier and ends up you know, committing rape along with his peers. And it's, it's very dangerous um, to, to write a story that's, that's sympathetic to the rapist, but in this case I was really interested in weighing the kind of different traumas of being this child soldier finds himself in this appalling situation and his victims so i didn't want you to do the obvious thing and just write a story about his victims saying oh look he's bad he's the evil soldier she's the victim i want to do something more subtle but i was aware that if i got it wrong it would seem to be a story absolutely sympathizing with uh, rapist soldiers so so that's i suppose what i mean about it being quite a dangerous technology of empathy in that its effects mm. are so powerful mm. And, you know, reading novels changes people's opinion at a deep down level that no amount of rational argument will do.
0: Yeah, no, no amount of, of lecturing, no amount of wonderfully crafted uh, opinion pieces. Um, you, you, fiction um, has a way in, I think, to, to the human heart and soul, that kind of bypasses our defence systems in some way. I, I think, do you,
1: yeah? I do, I mean, you know, the, the parallel that's, that's coming to my mind is, you know, all these, all these cell phone videos of, of, that, are, that are being passed around by the Black Lives Matter movement, it's, they're literally letting the rest of us see yeah. what it is like to have a policeman walk up to you threateningly, demand things, you know, hector you, yeah. accuse you of holding a weapon when you're just holding, say, a, 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 yeah. a, a rubbish picking up clamp. Um, it, it literally puts you on the body of the of the person of colour who is being um, harassed by police, and you know that one that one I think has, has changed minds way in, 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 in a way that no no medium less um, visceral would yeah. have done. I think yeah. you needed to literally see what it's like to have the the, the brutal police officer walk towards you. Yeah,
0: you you, you said earlier on about how. I mean the dramatic changes that have ta- social changes that have taken place in Ireland over the last thirty years. Um, I mean an Ireland that in some ways is unrecognisable, and I was thinking about that this morning and thinking about how those changes came about, or they were won, hard won, on the back of people's personal stories. So people told stories about being gay, being lesbian, being transgendered, about having abortions. People told stories about being divorced in relationships that were abusive. People, people, very brave people told very delicate stories that, that really changed hearts and mind uh, and, and brought about, I believe, the change that you're seeing now but well, you're right.
1: And I think that's, that's particularly true for Ireland. I think in other countries, you see often a much more explicit kind of civil rights campaigning. Um, and in, in Ireland, maybe because it's such a small country, what I think of as having really changed people is, uh, pe- you know, people ringing up the radio and um, telling their mm. story or going on the late, late. Just that willingness to expose yourself and to show that you are a human being, mm. I think has been um, transformative in mm. Ireland. Mm. Um, and often I think it means people, People then end up with a, a, a sort of more empathetic understanding rather than just saying, yeah, okay, fine, we have to extend those civil rights. Yeah, you know, think- if you've, if you've literally seen and talked to, yeah. for instance, the whole generation of, of, um, people I'm seeing on social media now who are like, yeah I'm Irish and yeah i am Nigerian as well, or you know yeah. mine isn't the face that you think of as Irish, but this is what Irish looks like now yeah I think they, they humanize it, so it's not an abstract concept, you know multicultural Ireland, but they're, they're making it real vivid they're putting a face to it
0: yeah, a, ver- a, a very powerful face that really, as I say I, I, I think it, um, it kind of bypasses it can bypass a lot of our, a lot of our defenses and is, is as we say is, is more powerful than um, than, than many other ways of doing that. One, one of the um, maybe just to go back ever so slightly in in um, the the wonderful story about the fasting girls, the uh, the wonder. Um, so so these girls um, across different parts of the world uh, uh, um, uh, historically, uh, who were fasting, um, and. Um, subject to a form of Catholicism that um really was um, disembodied that was kind of dismembered that saw the body as something that was going to uh, be your ruin and that idea of women the good woman doesn't have an appetite
1: um, yeah it's, it's it's funny if they're if they're doing this you know self-starvation in the year 1700. They're not specifically talking about looking skinny and glamorous, right? But they are talking about being pure, you know, yeah. not needing food, being above the body. So this, this kind of ascetic idea of, of the good woman is, is weirdly trans historical and transcultural. And just after I published the wonder which was very much focused on, you know, the, the Catholic storyline of a fasting girl. There was a girl in India who died after a, a, a fast of several weeks and she was of the Jain religion. Mm-hmm. So um it's not just Catholicism, sure. but as uh. I was saying before, if you're going to be highly critical, you should probably yeah. stick to your own tradition. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and yeah. I
1: was really interested in all Catholicism had to offer, frankly, that it you know, I, I try and show it as this very um Uplifting religion for the poor, you know, that they, they got to say, we are just as important as the kings and queens. You know, mm. the most humble little peasant girl mm. can be a saint. And so I'm, I'm trying to show that it, it, it offered huge amount of, of support and uplift mm. and solidarity mm. to the poor. But perhaps some of its, some of its costs were that it, it asked them to be pure and self-denying and it asked those who'd already lost so much yeah, to, yeah. to give up more you know and, and contribute more to the building of a church yeah. um, and to be more obedient did you... so so yes i wanted to sort of explore the extremes of that by looking at a little girl who decides that you know god doesn't want her to eat
0: yeah Emma, it, it, it's a form of a form of of Catholicism and in in other organized religions and um, and without being too dramatic about it did it, Did you get some of that? Did did some of that kind of thinking impact on on you as a Catholic Irish woman?
1: Not really. I mean, I I remember moments of say, you know, every Lent we we would give up sweets and there was this odd code that if somebody offered you a sweet or a piece of chocolate during lunch you could take it home and tuck it behind your holy pictures and save it for Easter. So <laughs> now I'd have this grotty little collection of individual sticks of barley sugar and squares of capcaries behind my picture of St. Teresa and of course I'd, I'd obsess over it you know every night I'd check out my stash and look forward to Easter so I don't think it did the intended um, thing which was to keep my mind off sweets <laughs> but the it was, let's just say there were kind of cultural fossils. I would say I was not in the 70s raised on a kind of a hardcore old school Catholicism at all. And um, there was an awful lot of um, post Vatican II, you know, mildness and talking about togetherness and love and so on so um no the catholicism mm. i was critiquing in the wonder is an older catholicism okay. but it's it's the roots of our culture sure. um and even the the irish habit of when you're first offered something you say no you know the kind of i know i know thanks yeah, yeah. um you have to be pressed to have yeah, the yeah. cup of tea in the scone. Um, so it's in- interesting that there are these little lingering echoes of that self-denying attitude
0: mm, mm. All of those all, all of those, influential, th- th- those pieces that influence, that, 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 that shape and form us. And, and of course, as you say, in, in, in various parts of the world, um, I mean, I, I don't think that we can have this conversation without talking about George Floyd, without talking about Black Lives Matter, without talking about our own versions of that. In, in Ireland with a, a direct provision system that's been in place for for, for far far too long in, in Canada for First Nations people. Um, I, I, I'm curious because for you as a a historical fiction writer in, in part and um, where are you on on the statues, on the removing removing of statues of Confederate people? Um, um, on colonisers. What are your thoughts? What do we do about that?
1: I have to say, when I, when I saw that statue of, of, of the, the slave trader in Bristol toppled into the water, I found that a glorious moment. Of course, I'm not suggesting some kind of wholesale removal of all statues of everyone who wasn't woke, you know, but I don't think anybody is suggesting that. Um, but I certainly don't feel that it's a, it's an anti-history impulse because you know history is made of these moments as well as being made of statues so for me it depends on the statue um we were discussing recently um us and our kids and um, there's a street in town named for somebody who had who held um you know slave plantations and they were discussing you know should that street name be changed and we were talking about how it'll cost a lot of money to change it and like maybe use that money for something a bit more concrete so um, I noticed a lot of people of colour on, on social media have been saying, okay, could, could, could you white people stop obsessing over the, the, the surfaces and actually focus on substantial stuff to do with funding of schools and equal access to healthcare and so on. So let's not get too caught up in the symbolic battles. Mm-hmm. But of course, they can matter too. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't mind if a few statues mm-hmm. come down.
0: And, you've, you've, and you've, been drawn, you've been drawn in your work to some of those difficult difficult historical issues, points, those, those those sources that that you've been drawn to that in in some ways I, I think kind of get at the best of humanity and at the worst of humanity. Um, you, can you say something about that or or is that the case?
1: I think a key moment for me was my first two novels were, you know, lesbian themed novels set in Dublin and then I did a book of fairy tales and but then my first historical novel um i I was writing about a, a servant girl who commits a murder but i I ended up inventing a character of a slave in that book because I was I was appalled to realize that in 18th century Britain there were slaves we always sort of blame mm. the Americans for mm. that so that's the first time I started being sort of explicitly revisionist and trying to write things into the, the 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 record of the past which have been left out and so I would say that my my interest in sort of women's history and and queer lives has naturally led me to to writing a lot about and slavery and the history of black lives as well um because as soon as like that moment i was talking about when you're 14 and you realize that you are the other in some way that should open your mind to all the ways that people are treated as the other it should give you a huge and and um committed interest in the lives of others Mm -hmm. Um, now of course you have to be aware that you're not always the best person to tell the story and um, there's been a lot of you know rethinking of 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 writers taking on subject matter that doesn't belong to their ancestors and to mm-hmm. what extent you're allowed to do that and you know how much does it matter how you do it um so mm-hmm. this is not an easy question but i would say my writing ever since about my third book has, has kind of you know reached out its hands to um histories other than my own mm-hmm. um because because there are such natural um, echoes and connections yeah. there. I
0: Emma, mean, you, you you started to write. I, th- I think you said you started to write when you were eight. You wrote um, you wrote a poem, uh, and your first love was was poetry. Um, you've been writing since. Uh, you've had the 50 se- You're fifty now. Uh, and you've had the same agent for, for more than 25 years, which I, I, I think is incredible.
1: It's great. It's like she's, she's a mother figure, you know? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you bring her everything, you know, your, yeah. your books, which are not going to ever get written maybe, your bad ideas, your your yeah. books, which will be a very obscure scholarly interest and then your bestsellers. Um, and, and she sort of uh, welcomes them all. So <laughs> I found it a very nurturing relationship. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The, the, Emma has the, has the reason that you write, has the reason changed over the sweep of your writing life?
1: No, I, I fundamentally enjoy it. Um, mm. I just, I, I get a thrill out of making stuff up. Um, and <laughs> um, I mean, I like some some parts of it more than others. You know, the beginning is very much like falling in love. So I'm often being wooed away by new ideas. Sometimes it's more of a slog to follow through on the older ideas. But, but no, I, I fundamentally um, find it the most Enjoyable way I could spend my days. So, Mm -hmm. um, even if I might sometimes have additional motives, like, you know, I wish to change the world or something, that's not the primary motive. And there are more, there are more direct ways of changing the world. Um, so, so no, if you choose to do it through a fiction, it's, it's, it's probably because you just fundamentally love this particular form of Mm. magic trick.
0: I I think, um, I speak, I speak for, um, I speak for quite a few people when I say this. I'm very conscious of my colleagues in UCD in equality, diversity, and inclusion, um, and 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 so many other people. But you're writing, uh, you 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 write in the outliers. It's it's almost as though you've put, you, you kind of put your arms around. The, the waifs, and the strays, and the abnormals. Um, you, you're, you're speaking some of, I think you're speaking some of that unspoken, that silence maybe that you, that you experienced as a teenager. Um, and that, that really is a, is, is a very precious gift.
1: Thank you so much. We... You know, I do, it's, it's partly because their stories are more interesting, you know, and you could say I'm unscrupulously looking for the best stories wherever I'll find them, and in, in the stories that our society has left out, there will be more surprise, there will be more that's unpredictable, and um, so it's, it's I'm, I'm always following my pleasure, I'm never putting someone into a book out of a feeling of like duty, must, right. must be good to them right. by including them, mm-hmm, no, it's much mm-hmm, more like, mm-hmm, wow, that's a story mm-hmm. I've never heard before.
0: Emma, it's been a real pleasure um, for, from, from the team here in, in Mali, from the team in UCD, in equality, diversity and inclusion. Uh, just a heartfelt thanks. You're, you're, you're our first guest on, on this project, past, present and pride project and it couldn't have been better. So a deep, deep heartfelt thanks and appreciation.
1: Same to you. Thank you all of you for making
0: this happen. Take good care. Bye-bye. For me, literature, for me, writers, for me, the the arts, in in some ways, um, capture capture what's often um, missed in conversation, what's often missed um, um, historically when it comes to the lives of people. Um, who for various reasons in in this country and beyond don't experience an equal world, uh, a a world that is accommodating, is embracing of diversity and certainly a world that isn't inclusive. So uh, I I, I feel the arts uh, and and literature play a very very central and important role in, in, in advocating for um, a more equal, a more just, a more diverse and inclusive society. You've been listening to a podcast from Radio Molly, which broadcasts from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider becoming a Molly member or giving membership to a friend. It's the best way to support the museum and its programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. Thank you for listening.